Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. This is the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure, and uh, on the program with me is... Jeff McClure. Uh, together, we make up your um, hosts. Does that make you parasites? If I think it does. Whoa, that's that's the scary thought. Uh, we are hosting you today for the Personal Wealth Coach. We'll be talking about the economy, the news, whether or not the market is going to implode, crash, or correct in the event that the person that you don't want to be president becomes president, whichever one that is. Um, and before we can do that, we have to give you our disclosures. Would you like to start? Well, we have to take our clothes off. Dun, dun. No, we have to disclose, though. Well, the first thing we have to disclose is that the personal wealth coach is not only the name, oh, not only the name of this radio program, it's also the name of a investment advisory firm in Salado, Texas, that's registered with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission. We tell you that because not because the Securities and Exchange Commission approves or disapproves. The secretary will neither approve nor disapprove of. Uh, I guess the commission will neither approve or disapprove of anything we do. It's just because that's who our regulator is because wait, we're – Wait, wait, It isn't the neither approve or disapprove. They never say they won't disapprove. They just won't approve. Well, they haven't officially disapproved of anything we're doing. Yeah, but that doesn't say that they won't. They certainly would never approve, and that's something important to know. It's not their job to approve it. It's not like the police go out and say, good job, citizen, for um, – Stopping at a red light. That's not their job. They don't give you a citation of good job. You got it. Well, the SEC does not approve of what we do, or for that matter, they haven't officially disapproved of anything we do. <laughs> That's good. But we tell them, we tell you that because we are, the SEC regulates uh, some investment advisors, so called, and I put this in quotation marks, quote, large, in quote, investment advisors. And the states regulate, quote, small, in quote, investment advisors. And we're large, which means I've gained way too much weight, obviously. And uh, so we're regulated by the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, and that's where you'd go with any complaint if we said something untoward on our radio program. Which we will do our best not to do, but sometimes untowardness happens. And let's see, we've told you that the that we're, we don't give investment advice, though, even though we're, invest, we're an investment advisory firm. Uh, say we are. We're part of an investment advisory firm. We're the two principals in the firm. And, uh, and if you come to our office, you're obviously in deep trouble. I'll let that one sink in for a minute. Wait a minute. That's, oh, because we're going to the principal's office? You got it. Well, we don't pay for this radio program. Uh, we don't get paid for this radio program. We do advertise on KTEM. And uh, we advertise for the radio program on KTEM. The uh, information that we provide has been from sources we, and this is my one time during the week I get to use this term, we deem reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of the information. And above all, the information we provide on this radio program is educational. It's not investment advice, even though we are the principals at an investment advisory firm. Investment advice is given to people based on their individual circumstances, desires, goals, and a lot of other things. And obviously, there's a lot of people, hopefully, a lot of people listening to this, and all of your goals and all of your desires and all of your tolerances for risk are not the same. So this, we can't give you investment advice. We can, however, give you some general information that we've gleaned from various reliable publications, and that's what we do. Well, can you tell us what happened this week in the market? Something happened in the market this week? I think so. Well, the market went up, then the market went down, and the market came back up again. And at the end of the week, it had moved hardly at all, 0.19% for the S&P 500. And it moved up and down. We mentioned this in the newsletter, but it's important to note. It moved up and down based on a couple of things. Two big forces moving the market, neither of which have anything to do with, uh, with the earnings of companies, which should have a big effect on the market. The, uh, the market went up because there were rumors that there would be a compromise uh, fiscal Stimulus bill passed that the because the White House had come out with a 1.88 trillion dollar bill and the Democrats had 2.2 and it was, and uh, Pelosi and Mnuchin were talking 
and there was great hope that they, we would get a fiscal stimulus bill. And then it sagged when we found out when it found out that we that that wasn't going to work. Everybody went home and said we're not talking anymore. And then the Republicans came in in the Senate and said we don't want any bill at all. And if we have a bill, it'll be so tiny nobody will accept it. So uh, it's basically the market went up and down based on the potential of a stimulus bill. And then oddly enough, at the tail end of the week, the market rose on news that Biden got a higher rating for his town hall meeting than Trump did. Now, not because the market is prejudiced about which who's going to be elected president. Quite the contrary. They don't care who gets elected president. The market went up because it looked like Biden, with his double-digit uh, uh, lead in the polls, is likely to have a clear victory. Yeah. This, this is – I think this is but, an important piece. Um I, you and I have both heard a lot from our clients this week, specifically this week, that uh, – and I've heard it from both ends of the political spectrum. If our candidate is not elected, the market's going to collapse. I would like to go to cash, please. And we generally talk people out of going to cash over political situations because the reality is that the market just wants to know that's it. It wants to know. That's that's the thing that the market wants. It isn't they want Biden elected. It isn't that they want Trump elected. They want to know that we have a clear election. Why is that? Because the market is made up of the same people that are voting. And if you look at the polls, if you really just look at these polls, if you look at the last election, the country is evenly divided. <laughs> Very close to evenly divided. All we want to know for sure for business purposes is who is president. And then we can start figuring out how to do business under that administration. There's an equal number of people or maybe a majority, we don't know, that one, one candidate over the other in the market. It doesn't, it doesn't have the same component to it like the market wants. Republicans or the market wants Democrats because the market is made of Republicans and Democrats. I would, I told each of the Democrats that called me and said, if, if Trump is elected, the market market's going to collapse. The same thing that I told to each of the Republicans that called me that said the market's going to collapse. If Biden is elected, I told them that I just talked with their opposing member who was saying the opposite thing. So that's, I know that's hard to understand when you're deep, deeply rooted in your own opinion. You have this massive, and, and during a presidential election, both sides ramp up that rhetoric so hard to make it look like the end of the world is nigh if the other, other guy is elected. Well, they've been saying that for a long time. This time, there's a lot more anger behind it for lots of different reasons, mostly because we're in a pandemic and a lot of people are sitting and, and stewing and they have less sports to watch. Do you mind if I cover that piece just a little Go bit? Go ahead. Going back to the beginning of recorded history, the way that you prevent unrest in the population, the, the Romans had a great statement for it, bread and circuses, low-cost food, and sports and food costs are up right now and there are fewer sports to watch so if you look throughout history at times when there are fewer sports to watch and food prices are up you see that the political discourse gets ugly and i realize i've just made this very quaint but if you think about the concept there of food prices going up, that's not quaint. Throughout human history, that's been, people might die over that. You throw in a pandemic on top of no sports, there is nothing to distract us from the two old people running for, for president right now. And that means that we can point, that anytime you start looking at people with this degree of magnification, you either have to completely ignore all their faults and say they are demi-human and somehow supreme, or you see all of their faults. And we tend to say, I don't see any of the faults in my candidate and they're all of the faults on the other side. Unless you're like, this is a strange thing, the plurality of, mo of America is in the middle. And they're looking at both and going, ugh, 
So that's that was that was my statement. You, I'll hand it off to you to get you, what you've been saying to clients during the same time period. Well, I've been saying very much the same thing. The market hates the market. There's an old saw, and the market is very, very true. The market hates uncertainty, and the real there's a couple of real fears in the market right now. One is that uh, we could have a, a contested election where we don't know who the president is. That would cause the market to that would that is a potential market crashing device right there. Uh, if we get if we get off into strange area, there are certain areas because of the way the Constitution is constructed and the way the laws are constructed, it's entirely possible, but very very low probability that we could get into a situation where we don't know who's president on January 20th when the old one has to leave. That would cause that would cause a severe market dislocation. If um, I'll be very frank and say, if President Trump was declared the loser by the or declared the loser, or and Biden is declared the winner by the Electoral College, it's entirely possible, for example, that some state might its legislature might appoint another set of electors, and we could get into a confused state, a very very confused state, very very quickly. Um, and get into a battle over who the president of the United States is. That, and, that, and I will tell you very flatly that, that the, the market will not like that. It doesn't matter who it is that the con- contest is over, not knowing who is president, the market's not going to like. And the other thing that the market doesn't like, and it has a somewhat less distaste for that, but it has a distaste for it, is – the absence of a stimulus bill, because again and again, the chairman, the chairman of the Federal Reserve and members of the Federal Reserve Board and major economists who, and economic organizations that have been correct in the past in forecasting recessions have said, if we don't get another stimulus bill, there's a real serious chance the United States economy will slip back into recession. We'll have other, we'll have businesses going out of business. Uh, major corporations declaring bankruptcy across the United States. If we don't get some action. By the Congress and the President on a fiscal stimulus bill, uh, we could be in some deep trouble. Not, it's not the end of the world. I'm not saying that that if we don't get a stimulus bill, the United States economy will collapse. It won't. It's just that the structural damage from the pandemic will be embedded in the economy, and the recovery will be longer and slower and more painful, and it will take us a lot longer to get employment back and to get earnings back up. That could cause a market collapse because. The top of the stock market, the top 10, by the way, the top 10, or actually the top five stocks in the S&P 500 now now control about 37% of the market. In other words, when you take that S&P 500 and you look at its valuation, 37% of the valuation of the S&P 500 now is five stocks, which is the highest concentration we've ever seen, much higher. So we passed the concentration we saw in 2000 just before the market dropped 50%. And let me say that I don't think the market's about to drop 50% because we're in a different situation. But the top five stocks are generally severely overpriced, and some of them are trading around 100 times earnings. And some and there's people some justify are, some are up in the thousand times earnings. They just some of the stocks are priced so high that it's ridiculous, and we're getting more and more people defending them, saying it's okay to have these high-priced stocks, but it's not. It is it's very- totally not. This is one of the things that happens repeatedly in history, and we can look at what happened to the dot-com boom uh, that ended in, in March of 2000 all the way through. We had a, a recession that ended uh, ended that big, massive uh, buildup, and that's where we got the term irrational exuberance. And a lot of people that are listening don't remember that term anymore, even though it was a big deal at the time. Just the other day, back in 1994 – Right. Uh, so, the, yeah, well, now we're, we're going even farther back to go to 94. Um, so this, this market is doing what markets do in plagues. Uh, we can look at the, the, the markets of the Netherlands during several of the not massive plagues in Europe. By not massive, it was still big, but it wasn't like the Black Death big. And what you see is that there's a lot of speculation that occurs into new technologies. And the existing technologies get beaten up, even if they're profitable. And the people that have made money in those situations, uh, that they're no longer around to tell us about it, but their books are around to tell us about it, 
um, jumped in and bought the stuff that was profitable in the middle of that that wasn't popular. And then coming out of these pandemic situations, they did really, really well. So, I, and that's something we're still we're still focused on. Uh, we've got a couple of questions sent in by email. Do we want to? We on the market first. Yeah, let's finish up. The yield on the ten-year U.S. Treasury note slightly slacked off. Now we still have a positive uh, yield, positive currency treasury. I'm not currency. Positive treasury yield curve. That's a mouthful this early in the morning. The yield curve, a positive yield curve indicates that the economy will probably be better a year from now than it is today, and I believe that's true. Um, but but the, the, the U.S. to 10-year U.S. Treasury note, which used to trade around 6%, is trading at 0.746%, which is just absurdly low. But it indicates that's, that that is not the correct number. What is the correct number? You said seven point. You are speaking from history. 0.746%. There you go. The decimal point needed to move over one place. Yeah, it's pretty low. And uh, it's it's that tells us that very, very low interest rate tells us, first off, that the Federal Reserve is doing a good job of holding interest rates down. But it also means there's very low demand for loans. There's in the, low demand for loans for 10 years, and people are willing to loan money out at lower than inflation. Inflation came in at about the core inflation in the United States just came in year over year from 1.7%, and people are willing to loan money to the United States government for 10 years at 0.746%, which means that is a negative roughly 0.7% a year. They're, they're willing to lose seven-tenths of a percent a year for 10 years just to loan the money to the government. They're willing to pay the government seven-tenths of 1% a year to have their money. Um, oil, uh, didn't do very much. It rose very slightly, about 0.57% to $40.78. That's a good sign. $40 is kind of the break-even point for a lot of major oil companies. If you get below 40 and stay there, you're going to have a lot more bankruptcies in the oil field. And now we can go to the questions. You got two questions. Yes. Um, both from John. The first one is global currency. And he's got a picture of the Wall Street Journal on here. And, uh, it's it always comes out sideways. Uh, yours is sideways. Mine, mine is fine. Good. Well, um, and it's it's looking at the price of the Chinese yuan uh, in uh, in the scales inverted to show a strengthening strengthening yuan. Uh, well, I always love it when journalists invert scales without telling you. Um, but this time they told us at least. Uh, okay. So his question. On this is, can you explain how countries control the value of their money, how investors make money from it? Thanks. Okay. I can, you can what? I can answer that one very specifically in this case. Well, I mean, he, he asked a very broad question. This yeah. case is this picture. Do you want to cover the broad or the specific first? Do you mind if I cover the broad and then you can cover the specific? You cover the broad, I'll cover the specific. Okay. Um, the value of a country's currency in how it's controlled, the theories and the practice of it were mostly developed by a guy named Isaac Newton. I know that's weird. How did that guy get involved here? Isn't he the guy with gravity and the apple and the stuff? Yeah. If he were alive today, just as a side note, if the Nobel Prizes had existed at the time, he would have had one in economics, physics, chemistry, and medicine. So just think, and maybe mathematics too. They don't really do it for mathematics. You would have given a different prize for that. But that—that uh, that is who this guy is. And he kind of wrote the book on how banks should be regulated by the government and how they should control their currency and how the government should get out of controlling the currency. Okay, and that's how the Federal Reserve is run, the Bank of England is run, the, the Bank of Japan, the central banks of what we would consider to be well-educated thinking countries. And they, they control their currency by raising and lowering, lowering interest rates and by controlling how much money banks must retain on hand and can't loan out. Now, it's very different 
than the article that he sent there. That's that's the broad use across a lot of countries that have basically said the government's not allowed to jump in and pump up the currency or drop down the currency. There's a whole series of other countries, and I'll hand that one off to you, that do it a different way. Here you go. Well, in this particular case, this is a specific instance, and it only works in China because China basically does not allow very much of its currency out of the country. Very little bit of the currency goes out of the country. And mostly they buy things outside of the country with dollars. And when they sell things, it's for dollars. They use dollars as their export-import currency. Uh, but they do allow the currency to trade to a limited extent, which means that they can control the price of the currency if they want to. But they didn't actually control the, They didn't actually do it. The headline that John sent said, China acts to let yuan fall in value. They didn't act to lower the value. Normally, there's a 20% tax in China if you make a bet against their currency or for their currency. If you do currency trading of any kind and you're in China, which is the only place you can do it effectively, uh, on the futures market in China, anything you do has a 20% tax on it, which means people don't do a lot of trying to bet the currency is going to rise and fall because they got to they they only get to keep 80% of the profit. China removed the tax if you want to bet that the currency is going to fall. No. In other words, they're allowing private traders to force the currency value down or at least hold it stable. Now, why would they do that? And there's other countries that do it different ways, Venezuela, Brazil, uh, where they just print more money. That's an active move to lower the value of their existing currency. They just make a lot of it. And if they have a lot of debts, their debts aren't made a lot more. There's just a lot more money to pay the debt. Uh, it doesn't work in Greece because Greece is using the euro to pay the debt. They can't devalue their currency anymore. When we're talking about China, though, when they let their currency fall, it makes it cheaper for us to buy from them. It makes it cheaper for the world to buy from China because $1 buys more yuan, and internal to China, the yuan's pretty steady. It's not devalued internally. You can still buy the same meal for the same price, but more. it takes less dollars to buy the same thing, which means it's cheaper for us to buy from China when they let their currency fall. The yuan has just closed out its best quarter against the dollar in 12 years. That's a thing to recognize. And why is it? Because China is trying to slow its economy down a little bit. I know that sounds ridiculous, but because they have defeated the virus in China effectively, their economy is surging, and people are bending over backwards to loan money to China, to buy bonds issued in China because they have interest rates on them. I say they have interest rates. The rest of the world, outside of really shaky third-world countries, has got effectively negative interest rates on their bonds. In other words, if you buy a U.S. bond or U.S. note for 10 years today, like I said, you're basically paying the United States government seven-tenths of 1% a year to held your money. What? If you have inflation. No, we, we're running along at about 1.7% inflation right now. Right. Yeah, if you have inflation, we are paying to have the bond. Yes. It's, effective. it's an effective negative interest rate. In Europe, Germany, for example, at 10 years still has negative interest rates. So the problem is, if you want to give, if you want to loan money to a government, which is the most stable place to loan the money, or you want to loan money to a AAA-rated company and you want a reasonable interest rate, there's only one place in the world you can go right now, and that's China. So people are buying yuan, the limited number of yuan that you can buy, so they can loan, so they can loan their money, they can loan the yuan to the Chinese government or to the Chinese whatever. So. As people buy the yuan in the open market, it causes the price to go up, the value of the yuan to go up. So China, rather than stepping in, because they know that that would create a tremendous political backlash, rather than stepping in to buy their own currency, which would or sell their own currency on the market, rather, which would cause the value to fall, they are allowing traders in the Chinese market, private traders, to do it for them because yeah. they buy. They're just opening the market up to the level that we have already. And that's what we do. It's Normally, what we do. Yeah. We don't have a twenty percent we don't have a twenty percent tax on currency trading in the United States. They do in China because they don't want people trading their currency. 
So they remove the 20% tax and people are. Let's say that, let's throw this, it's an additional tax above normal taxes. Right. 20%. When people say we don't have it, when I can hear people saying, what do you mean we don't have a tax on currency trading? Well, we do. This is an additional one on top of that, that China has had. And they, they basically moved it back to a normal, if you make money, you make a profit, then you pay taxes situation rather than you make profit, you pay taxes, and then you pay some more taxes. And in China, if you do a trade, it doesn't make any difference whether you make money or lose money. The trade has a 20% tax on it. It's kind of like withdrawing money from your uh, IRA early. It has a 10% center chart. Yeah. So there's a 20% penalty for trading currency, and they remove that. And since the, the yuan is unusually high and it's clear to many people that it's too high, the traders are stepping in and it should cause it to fall a little bit. Yeah, and, and it has, it's fallen a bit. And we're gonna see maybe some more fall, but it's only fallen a bit compared to the high of where it was in, uh, in earlier times. So it's just an important recognition piece is that their currency is getting more Western. What does that mean? They're starting, well, at least right now, they're treating their currency more like we do. 15 years ago, they would have just sold their currency on the open market or bought it at the governmental level. We have convinced them over enough screamings and yellings and uh, that they shouldn't be doing that, that's doctoring the currency that's the, and the World Bank and the, and the trade courts for the UN all agree that that's not a good thing. And the Chinese have lost enough cases there. And these ones, they've actually honored the loss. They've lost some other cases with the UN and they just ignore it. Say, we don't agree with that. We're not going to do what you told us to do. Yeah, that's good. Uh, And we've got another question too. Do you think we've answered that one? I think we can answer that one. Right. Uh, Do you think we finished answering that first question? I think we did. Governments step in. Let me let me kind of summarize this. Governments often step in. We've stepped in. The Euro Central Bank has stepped in to try to stabilize their currency when they think it's too high or too low. They try to buy it when they think it's too low or too high, or, or when it's too high, they try to sell it. But it's generally ineffective. Allowing the free market to handle it's much more effective. Right. And and what has become normal is that the governments don't step in anymore. This sign is actually a good sign that China's becoming more like us in that area, the thing that we've been complaining about. It's still going to have a weaker currency because of this, and they're still going to make their goods cheaper, but they're not cheating to get there. Um, and they do it the same way. The, way. the way we control our currency isn't at the governmental level, and that's something that's a really hard thing for people to understand. It's not. When a country controls its currency, our government has passed a law called the Federal Reserve Act that says the government's not going to do that. We're going to allow the Federal Reserve, which is mandated by Congress, to make those moves. And and they control internal currency issues. They don't they generally don't go out and buy our currency on the open market. Rather, they will go out and sell bonds to Americans or buy bonds from Americans. And they need to know who they're buying from to do that because we're not trying to change our exchange rate. We're trying to prevent inflation or deflation inside the United States, which is a different thing. So this step by the Chinese is, in my opinion, a good move long-term. It may, may be that we will not benefit from this specific move in the United States. It may mean that we buy more stuff from China, but they're doing it in a way that's an open playing field. It's not cheating to get it done. Does that seem right? Yeah. Okay. You want to hit the next one? Well, John wanted to know, wanted us to make an argument for against the current U.S. borrowing strategy to pay bills, whether it isn't or is Ponzi financing. Ponzi financing is, and he mentioned this in the article, he's the part of the article he photographed and sent to us. The term that was uh, coined by Herman Minsky, who is a interesting uh, person to read. He makes some very simple uh, concepts about currencies and borrowing. 
which uh, unfortunately, you know, they've been tried on several occasions. They haven't worked. They sound really good, though. Um, right now, the currency, the borrowing by the United States government is not to cover pensions. Currently, the pensions are paying for themselves. Now, that sounds a little ridiculous, but about uh, five years from now, our pensions are going to run out of money. Five Between five and ten years from now, the funds that have been built up to pay Social Security, military retirement, civil service retirement, and so on, basically run dry. And at that point, we will start borrowing money to pay pensions. At this particular moment in time, borrowing a lot of money by the government, and by the way, the, the deficit hit $3.1 trillion, and that's a record by far. We tripled the deficit in the last fiscal year. But uh, the, I, the I, I need to come in with a quick correction. What's that? Um, the way the law is set now for Social Security, not true on Medicare, but on Social Security, when the trust fund runs out of money, we're not going to be borrowing money to pay that Social Security. We're going to drop the amount that's paid. Yeah, sure. That that is what's currently on the books, and so I'm uh, saying that now. And you're saying, yeah, sure, but that's never going to happen. I think we will wind up borrowing money or or raising taxes, one of the two, because it's really really bad for your voting constituents to um, have their income drop. Yeah, government, the government doesn't like that. Theoretically, when the Social Security fund runs dry. The trustees have said, and that, by the way, they keep moving that date back. It's 2030, I think, right now, which is only 10 years from now. We will have to cut Social Security benefits by about 20% across the board to make up for it. So that is going to be a really unpleasant and unhappy thing. I am quite confident that if we hit that point and we haven't done anything to alleviate it, Congress will pass a law saying, no, 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 we'll make up the 20%. No problem. We'll just borrow some more money. Let's hope we don't get there. But the, let me let me address the present condition in the United States. Yeah, people are loaning money to the United States at such an amazingly low interest rate that they're in effect paying the United States to borrow money from them. That sounds ridiculous. the 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 interest burden that the United States is bearing right now is lower than it was in 1980 yeah. as a percentage of GDP. So as long as interest rates stay this astonishingly low, the debt is not a problem. The problem occurs in that interest rates don't stay low forever. They never have in history. It's very unlikely they will stay low forever going into the future. If I were in charge of borrowing money at the Treasury right now, I would say, matter of fact, Secretary Mnuchin has said this, and the president shot him down and said, don't do it. I would be selling 40-year bond, bonds and 100-year bonds, whatever, to take it low interest rates. But he's forced to borrow short-term to lower the interest rates even further to effectively zero because it holds the, it holds the interest rates that we're paying down. Now, the question here is, is U.S. borrowing, is it a strategy, strategy to pay bills, is it or isn't Ponzi financing? And, Not yet. Um, what I can say to explain that, a Ponzi, it's named after a guy named Ponzi. He would collect money. As the money came into him, he would turn and give it to his earliest investors. And as more people invested, invest is the wrong word because he just it was just like recycling the money. New people gave their money to the people that had been there longer. There's a limit to that because there's a limit to the number of people in the world. And the whole thing, the chain letter thing, uh, where if you can convince seven people to send you a dollar and each of them convinces seven people to send them a dollar and so on down the list, eventually you're all millionaires. Well, this is the Ponzi scheme. The problem with it is that this is an exponential jump. And by about the seventh layer, you now are getting money from everyone on the planet. Um, so it's not possible to do it that way. So is borrowing money to pay for debts at the government level a Ponzi scheme? The big question is who are they borrowing money from and what are they spending it on? 
if they just turn around and gave the money away, like what we're doing in the, in the stimulus, it depends on who they're giving the money to and why. If they're giving it to people to allow them to continue in business and be profitable, that's a long-term generally considered good investment by a government because their tax revenue will increase in the future because they're encouraging a business that's already profitable or has been profitable. If it's giving money to people that are temporarily out of work so that they don't become a greater burden on the system, if they have no money and they get a health issue, guess who gets to pay for it? All of us do. So that statement of, is it a Ponzi? Not currently. If we start borrowing to pay for social security, that then begins to meet every definition I can find of a Ponzi scheme. Go ahead. You're right. completely correct. It's important to borrow right now, contrary to what some of the Senate saying. It's important to borrow right now for a simple reason. Structural damage is occurring in the system, in the, in the economic system of the United States. When a business that's effectively profitable under normal circumstances, a good restaurant, for example, is the simplest explanation, but also manufacturers and lots of other places, retail places. When a business that's normally profitable was profitable in 2019 but is not profitable because of the pandemic, goes out of business and shuts down and shuts its doors and goes into liquidation, it is called structural damage in the economy. The same thing is true, and, and there's the Wall Street Journal has run anecdotal stories that explain the statistics. If a family, let's say a single mother, is uh, is was working before and now can't work because of the Ponzi, not because of the Ponzi, because of the pandemic, the pandemic is a Ponzi in a sense. The viruses are going to defeat themselves eventually. Right, right. But – if she can't work anymore and she ultimately gets evicted from her apartment and is homeless, then she really can't go to work. And so we lose one consumer in the economy. We lose a person who's both working and being productive in the economy and spending money to create productivity in the economy. Every time we have a situation where a family is evicted from their home and can't find a place to live, or lowers themselves on the economic ladder where they are where they are stuck further down the ladder. We damage the economy for years into the future. And the same thing is true, of course, of businesses. Businesses are what roughly 20% of small businesses last I read, but it's going up to 50 in other estimates that I read. 50% of and we say 50% of small businesses are going out of business. That's a lot of loss in the economy. If we can get some more money back into the system from the government to keep them to keep them going until we can get a vaccine and get this thing under control, that's something we don't have to rebuild. That that is a very very good investment in the economy. If you now borrowing money just to borrow money, borrowing money just so we can lower taxes and make people who are in low tax brackets even in lower tax brackets, that is not profitable for the economy. That's a general economic statement of what is considered to be generally accepted truth. But borrowing in a crisis is a really good idea. Every yeah. economist, and no matter who it is, agrees, Minsky included. Friedman included. Uh, right. You know, if, if you think about the person that's all about having cash on hand and not borrowing, not borrowing, not borrowing, Friedman wrote multiple papers on if you don't have the cash on hand and you're in a, in a catastrophe, you need to borrow. Now pay it back as quickly as you can. Uh, Keynes, which is the left-leaning side, said essentially the same thing. Uh, you, the government should only borrow in a crisis situation and then should pay the, the debt off relatively quickly. So there, there's no economist long-term that's been about we need to borrow and not pay it back because that's not how economics works. There's no school of economics that says that's plausible. There are basically two ways for the United States to handle its debt going forward. And eventually, if we just keep borrowing more than our GDP growth, we will eventually reach the point where we can't borrow. We everybody knows that that's accepted. As long as our increase in the in the in the amount of money we owe as a government keeps up with our gross domestic product over the long term, we're really not borrowing any more money. It's a pretty good deal. But when we get ahead of that, and by the way, we did a couple of years ago when the tax cut passed. 
we got ahead of it to we're running trillion dollar deficits in good times and our debt was growing faster than our GDP, that's when you have to be deeply concerned because eventually there's two ways out of it. One is to raise taxes, which we did following World War II, and pay the money back. The other one is to generate inflation, which the Federal Reserve is forbidden to do. and matter of fact, is, is ordered by law to stop. If you generate inflation, you create a monster problem because the interest rate on the debt rises with inflation. So basically, if we're going to have a responsible government and it's not going to collapse, you should prepare yourself if you're higher income for higher taxes in the future. I've been telling our clients that. It's true. No matter who gets elected, I mean, the current tax law expires in 2025, and we go back to the old tax regime. And when, it, when we go back to the old tax regime, I'm confident we'll go back to a higher tax rate for upper-income people. Right now, the Biden plan, which is probably the most likely one to be enacted. Well, we don't know for sure. Well, Where are you getting that data? I mean, polls are saying he's likely to be elected, but it would have to take a sweep of the Senate and the House to make sure that it would pass. And that's so well, likelihood is low on any new tax plan until except I think the highest likelihood is the one that's already on the books, which means it goes up in 2025. I suspect somewhere down the road, people who make the, the, the cutoff point in his plan is $400,000. He didn't say whether it was joint or individual. Basically, if you make more than $400,000 in your family a year, your taxes are likely to go up substantially in the future. We did that following World War II, and eventually we're going to be forced into the position of raising taxes and when we raise taxes, we're probably going to do very much like we did following World War II, which means it's going to be very progressive. People in the highest tax brackets, the ones that are going to hit hit the hardest. Yeah, I mean, that's we had a 90% tax bracket following World War II, uh, and it caused people to to slowly move out of business. So then we had this big, big deal where we lowered the tax, the top tax bracket to 50%. That and, was a big. Deal. Yeah, and then people went back to work and said, all right, I'll work for that. 50% is a lot better than 90%. But at the same time, compared to today's 37%, it looks like a big tax increase. Well, when, when we look at what we're spending and what we're making, it's nice to have low taxes. Please don't get me wrong there. I have benefited greatly from having lower taxes, as, had, as has the other bald person on the radio talking to you. All of our clients have benefited from the lower taxes. But the overall debt of the United States has increased. That's not the subject we're talking about now. All the way up to the pandemic, we were saying we need to pay off some of this debt because it's going to get in the way if we ever have a catastrophe. Then we had a catastrophe, and we're just getting more debt. We have to get out of this because this isn't the only catastrophe we'll ever have. I know that that's being a pessimistic person, but the reality is that Golden eras don't last forever, and we have to plan for when winter comes. That, you know, it happens. So that's, that is the point that I'm making here, is that we have been saying for the past several years, before the pandemic hit, we need to cut back on the borrowing and start paying more. I know that's hard to do. I think the pandemic might put us in a place where we can do it. Because a lot more people are thinking structurally about what can we afford and the act of the individual person. So you said this earlier. There's a lot of money out there waiting to be loaned out and not a lot of people willing to borrow. What, what does that mean? Well, it means that if we look at the debt load of the United States on the personal level, people have been paying off their debt because they're scared that their income's gonna go away. And those that had a lot of debt and were getting the bonus on their unemployment were using a lot of that extra money to pay off debt. So there's a lot of money in the system and, and most people are trying as hard as they can to pay off their debt, which makes interest rates low. That's why they're low. As soon as we say, hey, we can borrow $3 trillion a year forever, interest rates will start going up because that's not a sustainable debt load. There you go. Uh, and I'm sure Cooper has some commercials to play for us. Um,
So, Cooper, hopefully you're listening. If if not, then we'll keep talking. But uh, if you're listening, let's go ahead and play some commercials. If you'd like to contact us, uh, you can uh, email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com, and we'll answer your questions. All right, let's play some commercials. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. Uh, if you would like to join the conversation, we're not taking phone calls yet. Um, we will, we're working on the ability to do that, and hopefully we'll have it in the near future. Uh, the uh, way to get into the conversation, though, is to email us. We're checking our email, and if you're in your car driving down the highway, I would highly recommend not emailing us in that uh particular circumstance but we do take telepathic messages as well you can do it in the car if you do it by voice that's that's true you could you could ever car yeah um the email addresses are jeff at tpwc.com as in the personal wealth coach.com or jake at tpwc.com uh all right so you you want to you have a subject looks like you are ready I think this subject will carry over into the next hour, but it's important to recognize what's happening in the broad economy. And we talked about this a little bit in the newsletter, but it's important to recognize that there's something going on here. Because of no stimulus bill, the broad economy has stagnated. In other words, we've come back about 80% of the way to where we were in February. We're stuck about 20% below normal economic activity in the United States, and we're starting to sag backwards. Some very specific numbers that have come out. Jobless claims, which were trending downward until a couple of weeks ago, started rising. We have 898,000 new jobless claims last week, and California, the largest market for such claims, is not reporting new jobless claims, which means they're out of the system. But we still had nearly 900,000 new jobless claims last week, which means there's more layoffs. And the the reason why California didn't report is because they have a backlog that's so big that rather than reporting how many they had, they had to count the ones that they had. (laughs) They have to figure it out, and then they'll report it. Basically, California was running about a month to six weeks behind when somebody applied for unemployment benefits. They weren't even being processed for a month to six weeks. And that was charitable. Actually, it was several several months was the reality to it. And so they stopped the claims. Right. And there's there's some other things going on right now that we will see next week that we're not seeing right now. And that is that we've had a couple of uh, hurricanes uh, that have caused evacuations and business shutdowns. And on the West Coast, uh, California is not reporting because they've got so much backlog. Well, why do they have so much? Why? Are, I mean, this is a big business area, and they've actually not done too poorly in the pandemic. But if you throw the wildfires in on top of the pandemic and evacuations across lots and lots and lots of the West Coast, I think people are unaware of the size of those fires. That They think, all right, there's a big fire out there. There were lots and lots of very big fires, and it caused a lot of people to have to evacuate, and they had to shut down, and a lot of those businesses have burned up now. And it's still burning. Some of them are still burning, by the way. We just, they just gotten the old news now. It's like the pandemic. It doesn't make the headlines anymore, but it's still out there. The fact that we're approaching 220,000 people who've died in this pandemic this year, which is over twice the number that have been that have died in a two-year period from a flu epidemic. The fact that we've got that isn't headlines anymore. It's just kind of background noise. The fact that uh, the the numbers are still rising in Texas and the Texas, for instance, I heard last week, officially and unofficially, that El Paso hospital ICUs are completely filled up and they're transporting people to, to Central Texas by by air who are getting COVID in El Paso doesn't make headlines anymore, but it's there. The same thing is true of the fires in California. But the important thing to realize is that we, we're seeing a rising number of jobless claims. Now, the people on permanent unemployment, the people on unemployment, the total number has been dropping by some 
by dropped about 0.9 or dropped about, I think, 1% last week. The problem with that number is most of those people who are dropping off unemployment are not getting jobs. They're running at the hitting the six-month point where they can't have unemployment anymore, and we only have one minute left in this hour. Yeah, and we're going to tell you a little bit about how to contact us off the air. If you'd like to contact us locally, we have voicemail waiting on the weekend at 254-947-1111. You can go to that same voicemail on the weekend's real live people during the week, toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. Uh, you can uh, do a contact us form there, or you can read our our newsletter, sign up for our newsletter, or listen to recordings of the radio program going back quite a ways. I would also uh, say go ahead and email us. This is good for the second hour as well. Email at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been the Personal Wealth Coach. Thank you very much for listening.